I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore America's rich history and thought leadership through interviews with best-selling authors. This interview is with leading investigative journalist Jerry Mitchell, author of the new book, Race Against Time, A Reporter Reopens the Unsolved Murder Cases of the Civil Rights Era, which came out on February 4, 2020. We did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on February 26th. Enjoy. Early this morning, uh, our wonderful President Bob did a great job of circulating information about our speaker, Jerry, who got on an airplane this morning a little after 4 so that he could arrive at DFW at 6, and here he is. Uh, Jerry's uh, just completed the East Coast portion of his tour uh, for his wonderful book, and Jerry has been in Jackson, Mississippi, as one of the nation's leading investigative reporters for over 30 years. He's won every award there is in the world of investigative journalism and has been a finalist for the Pulitzer David Halberstam, Halberstam, who many of you know of, here's what uh, he said about Jerry, quote, the most distinguished reporter in the entire country, an ornament to the profession and a reflection of what one reporter with a conscience can do. I simply marvel at him and what he has done. And a year ago, uh, Jerry left his longtime newspaper in Jackson, Mississippi, to form the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. And I asked him a minute how, a minute ago how it was going. He said, oh, it's great. All the prisons in Mississippi blew up with all of these prisoners killing each other. And uh, so it's been a, a fertile field for investigative reporting. Well, we told them it was going to blow up and warned them, and they didn't do anything. So I, I just mean we, we pointed out the... So anyway, Jerry was born and grew up in Texarkana, so he's a Texan, Uh, and when he got out of school, uh, went to, he said he aspired to work for the Dallas Times-Herald, but they said, no, I think you need to start a little lower, so he went to Jackson and never came back, and as we all know from our study of Mississippi, that's a good place to be if you're an investigative reporter, as his book points out. So, please welcome Jerry Mitchell. Now, Jerry, you started pursuing the prosecution of Ku Klux Klan murderers after you saw the movie Mississippi Burning in January 1989. And then when the movie ended, somebody who was in that theater with you was the governor of Mississippi's press secretary. And you had a conversation with him. So how did that movie and that conversation cause you to take action toward beginning the investigation of these Klan murders of leading figures in the civil rights movement? Well, I knew nothing about any of this. I mean, I was a, I was a young kid when the civil rights movement was taking place, and it wasn't really on my young, young child radar, you know, and because um, my parents weren't active in the movement, nothing like that. So when I saw the movie, the first thing was – here were more than 20 Klansmen involved in killing these three young men, James Cheney, Andy Goodman, and Mickey Schwerner. 
And what I couldn't believe is that nobody had ever been tried for murder. I mean, that was the part I just couldn't wrap my head around. Was nobody ever been prosecuted for murder. I saw it with two FBI agents who investigated the case, journalists who covered the case, and they began to kind of explain things to me. And you're right, the governor's press secretary is the one that pointed out to me that uh, there was no statute of limitations on murder. It was something I knew, but he kind of reinforced that point. Yeah, that was, a, that was an important point. So how many in this room saw the movie Mississippi Burning? It's all over the cables these yeah. days. If you haven't seen it before, if you're channel surfing like I do, you have a chance to see it again. Gene Hackman in one of his characteristic bad guy roles. But, Jerry, how much of the movie was fact and how much was fiction? A lot of it's fiction. Uh, I mean, uh, and and so when I saw it with this FBI agent sitting next to me, he kind of, it was like running commentary. Oh, that didn't happen. Oh, yeah, that happened. You know, so, I mean, I just kind of got the, the running commentary. So it's a fictional film about real-life events. The other part of it is they kind of threw in some other things into the mix as well that that really didn't take place in Neshoba County, which is kind of where the killings took place. They have this fictional county called Jessup County, and they kind of throw in the Vernon Damer case and some other cases too. So. Mm-hmm. Now, the title of your book is Race Against Time. What was the race? Well, the problem is, you, you know, if you're going to prosecute these cases for murder, you know, you're talking about, suspects that are dying, witnesses that are dying, evidence that's lost, all those things. So if you're going to do something, you have to do it pretty quickly. Yeah, so these murders took place in the early 1960s, Mm -hmm. and you started this in 1989, so you can imagine. Now, under the Constitution, there is a right to a speedy trial. Correct. So how did prosecutors pursuing defendants who committed crimes 30 years ago get around that? Well, because the, the, um, it has to do with the indictment, the, when you indict someone, but they, they got rid of the, uh, they dismissed the indictment in let's say the Megar Evers case and some of the other cases I covered that there wasn't an indictment, you know what I mean? So therefore there wasn't a, there wasn't a, you could argue a due process argument, but it's not technically a speedy trial problem. If that makes sense. At least this is what the law professors told me so. And plus, there's no statute of limitations on murder. On murder, exactly. Now, one of the main reasons that the Klan had so much success in murdering civil rights figures and then getting away with it was because their members included policemen, uh, politicians, and lawyers. That's true. So is what happened in the Ku Klux Klan murders in Mississippi and Alabama in the 1960s the most glaring obstruction of justice in American history. I don't know. I mean, I have to really think about that. I I don't know in comparison to what, but, but it was pretty awful. I mean, in terms of, I think that was what made it so bad. It was not just these guys got away with murder, but the fact that everybody knew they got away with murder. And I think that was, at least to me personally, that was what made it so horrible. So for example, uh, how did Klan policemen operate? to allow these murderers to go free. Well, in the Mississippi burning case, uh, what they did, uh, to tell that story slightly. So the, there was a church burning. There was a, a church, a black church in Neshoba County that was burned to the ground. The members were beaten. 
this was a church that had agreed to set up what they called a freedom school, where they were going to have come in and teach kids, you know, give kids an education and teach about voting rights to the adults as well. And so um, the Klan attacked the church. They thought the civil rights activists were there. They attacked the church. They beat the members. They burned the church down. Well, news finally got to, it's not like today, it's not instantaneous news, but news got to Oxford, Ohio, where they were training the college students to come down as part of Freedom Summer, Summer 64. They heard about it. They actually came back a little early. So it was, as I mentioned, Mickey Schwerner, James Cheney, Andy Goodman, and they went to go investigate. And on their way back from the church burning, Deputy Cecil Price, who was a member of the Klan, arrested them and put them in jail and then later released them into the hands of waiting Klansmen. That, I mean, it was all planned out, you know. And then they killed them and buried them 15 feet down in an earthen dam. Didn't find them for 44 days. Now, some Klan murderers were put, or actually put to trial in the 1960s, but they either got off scot-free or were convicted of lesser crimes or there were hung juries. Right. But how important were the transcripts and the outcomes of the trials in the 60s in prosecuting the murderers in the 1980s and 90s. It was incredibly important. For I'll give it a quick example. You, you probably heard the Emmett Till case, Emmett Till murder. Um, and so there were two men that were prosecuted for that, but they were acquitted, you know, by, by the all-white jury. Well, with the Meg Rivers case and other cases, they had hung juries. So, of course, that meant you could still go back and, and prosecute those cases. So, if they, it had been acquittals, you know, you wouldn't be able to prosecute them. Uh, then, with regard to, um, what was the other part of it you were asking about? The um, one other part of that. Well, anyway. about the transcripts oh, the of transcript. the trial. Yeah, the transcript part of it. So, they, yeah, and I didn't know this starting out. I, I found out a lawyer told me about this, that you could actually... If you have a transcript, say, from one of those trials, you could use it if the witnesses were dead because they, they're cross, as long as cross-examination had taken place, you could use it as if it's live testimony. So how did you use the transcripts, or how did the lawyers use the transcripts in the Well, 90s? the trial. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the Megra Evers case, which is kind of fascinating, they actually... Um, for lack of a better term, they kind of cast it. In other words, rather than just have someone dryly read the transcript, they at actually, the at the trial, they actually kind of cast the character, so to speak. They had people play the parts, and uh, they did an excellent job. It, it really helped the transcript kind of come to life as opposed to just dryly reading it. So they read the transcript with full dramatic fervor? They did. They did a good job, actually. That's like a good tactic. Now, um, in doing your investigations of the murders and writing about them in your newspaper in Jackson, you yourself encountered hostilities and even death threats because of what you were doing. Yep. So were you ever intimidated uh, to the extent that you considered abandoning your efforts because you just thought it, it just didn't worth giving my life or my, my family's life to, to keep doing this? No, I was young and stupid. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I I was obsessed and, and dedicated to kind of this, you know, the idea. The injustice just angered me, to be honest. And um, 
I, uh, I, one of the times I'll, I'll share this one. Um, so I went to go interview Byron Dela Beckwith. This is the guy that killed Meg Rebers. And, um, he lived in Signal Mountain, Tennessee, so just outside of Chattanooga, and went up there and talked to him. And we talked for probably about six hours, something like that. Absolutely the most racist person I ever spent serious time with, like inward this, inward that. Then he started in all the non white races and also was very anti Semitic on top of that. So it was starting to get dark. And so I thought it was probably a good time to go. And, uh, so, so he insisted on like walking me out to the car and I'm like, really? That's okay. I, I think I can find my way. So he walked me out to the car and says, if you write positive things about white Caucasian Christians, God will bless you. If you write negative things about white Caucasian Christians, God will punish you. If God does not punish you directly, several individuals will do it for him. And so his wife had made me a sandwich. <laughs> I didn't guess what I did with the sandwich. So when you called your wife at home that night, did you tell her about that conversation? No, I didn't share that one right away. <laughs> she was very she was very nervous about me going to visit him. In fact, she actually said, uh, if you go if you go, I won't forgive you, actually is what she said. <laughs> Her exact words. Well, yeah. uh, talking about uh, Byron Beckwith and the murder of Medgar Evers in 19, June of 1963, he was actually tried twice yeah, in 1964. And, of course, in those days, it was all-white juries. All-white, all-male. All-white, all-male. You remember yeah. that from To Kill a Mockingbird. The juries were always all-white and all-male. Uh, and in both cases, the juries hung. So after two failed efforts to win, the prosecutors dropped the case. Yep. So, so what were the disturbing facts that you learned in your investigation that caused those juries to hang? Well, they had some. One thing that happened was that there were some police officers that claimed they saw him. And the, the details of that, if you really understand the details of that, there, there's kind of, it's pretty darn suspicious. You know, they, they claimed they claimed they saw Beckwith that night in Greenwood, Mississippi, which is about at least an hour and a half away from Jackson, Mississippi, which is where the assassination took place. To, to back up a little bit, the assassination took place on the same night that President Kennedy told the nation the grandsons of slaves were still not free. And literally hours later, Meg Rivers was shot in the back and killed in his own driveway. He was a World War II veteran, by the way. Actually, both of them were World War II veterans. Um... And, uh, anyway, so the, um, you're asking about the evidence that the, basically what, what caused them to re, be reopened. What, basically. what, no, I asked what caused the juries to hang? What were yeah. some of the so disturbing the, so, factors? So, yeah, I got off the cops. So anyway, the, the two police officers claim they saw Beckwith. So the killing took place about 1230. They claim they saw Beckwith in Greenwood at 1.05 a.m. They said he wasn't doing anything unusual. He was just getting gas for his car. The problem is they didn't know to remember that detail, nor did they connect it to anything until Beckwith got arrested, you know, 10 days later, if that makes sense. Or it's like, the, it's like if you saw somebody, you know, passing at the grocery store, I mean, would you remember that 10 days later who you saw at the grocery store? I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, we just don't. 
And if you did, maybe you'd be, but you'd be vaguer about the time, you know, but it was a very specific time as 105. So it, to me, it was highly suspicious. But, but what did the Klan do in connection with like the jury panel and the jury selection and deciding well, were, who would get on the jury? Yeah, this was, the Klan was very active back then. And so, and, and again, you have law enforcement who was involved in the Klan. And so a lot of times they would, you know, get onto juries purposefully, you know, like they would purpose, kind of conceal themselves and put themselves on jury. Or if the sheriff, a lot of times in these counties, would have a real power over who came into the jury pool and he would, you know, recruit people to, to be on those on the in the jury, you know, in the jury pool, and just a lot of things like that that, that took place. And once the jury was in the box, what kind of things did the Klan do in terms of? Uh, well, they would they would contact. They would make direct contact with jurors. I mean, they would actually do that. And the White Citizens Council too did that. In fact, in the Emmett Till case, the White Citizens Council contacted all the jurors in the case. Now, as you said a minute ago, yeah. Beckwith was the worst racist that you've ever encountered in your life, and I suspect you've encountered many. And many Klan murderers, and this is pr uh, particularly disturbing, uh, were Christians. Uh, some One yeah. was a preacher, taught Sunday school, went to church every Sunday, yep. and they believed that God had directed them to kill people. Yeah. So did you ever determine how these sick racists connected the dots between their religious faith and their crimes? Well, there were uh, a number of these guys were what you would call Christian identity. That's what Beckwith was and Bowers was. Explain was. that. And Sam Bowers, who's the head of the clan. Uh, so Christian identity, and this is, I'm just explaining it bluntly. Um, so forgive me for being so blunt. It's, it's very racist. But they believed that Adam and Eve were white people. Okay, They believed that all the non-white races were created on the sixth day and therefore like animals and have no souls. And they believed that Eve had sex with Satan the serpent and that's where Jews came from. I mean, it's all horribly offensive, but that's, that's literally what they believe. Yeah. Well, and so therefore, if they're killing, because, if they're killing someone that's, and you know, that has no soul, then it's like killing a dog or something like that. If they're killing someone who's Jewish, then, well, they're, they're doing God a favor. They're getting rid of someone satanic, you know, and that's the way they view it, actually. So Now, another famous murder besides the Medgar Ever case, we've all seen uh, Birmingham, September 1963, there were four little uh, African-American girls who were murdered at the 16th Street Baptist Church. They were killed by a firebomb. Right. And, and, and initially, no one was charged with the murders. No, not for a long time. So, so what, what about that investigation, that you could have such a highly publicized crime and, and no one would, would even be charged with the murder? Well, Jake or Hoover, you can thank him for that. He shut it down in 65. He shut yeah. down that So what was that about? J. Edgar Hoover shutting down the investigation, saying this case is closed. I don't know. I mean, other than, I, you know, the, the suspicion that he didn't like the movement. I mean, that's pretty obvious. He felt like it was the civil rights movement was being uh, used by the communists or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. 
Yeah. And, and so he shut it down, not only shut it down, but he, he prevented, blocked them from sharing that information with local authorities who maybe, I don't know how serious they would have been at that time to pursue the case, but yeah, he blocked that possible avenue. So, uh, what, 33 years later, in May 2000, yep. two Klansmen were finally indicted for the murder of the four girls. Yep. What did you do in connection with getting them indicted? Well, I, I before before they were indicted, I, I talked with, uh, in 99, well, I talked to him in 98 on by telephone, and then his wife, several months later, invited me. His last, one of the last living suspects, his name is Bobby Cherry, and so he invited me. He lived, uh, he lived near Tyler, Texas, and... Uh, Tyler has it, or East Texas known for having a few races. There. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess technically it was Maybank. Everybody, anybody knows where Maybank, Texas is. And, a lot of people uh, know where Maybank is. Yeah, we've got some people who know where it is. So, um, and so I, I drove over from Mississippi and met with him and his wife. Took them out for barbecue because uh, I guess that's what you take Klansmen out for. I'm not really sure, but so. Uh, we uh, we ate barbecue and we talked. He's like, I didn't have anything to do with that church bombing. I left that sign shop at a quarter to ten because I had to get home and watch wrestling. The sign shop, by the way, is where they made the bomb. I just thought I'd point that out. So, and so he even had this sworn statement from this woman. You know, we were, you know, we were all sitting around watching wrestling that night. So I got back to the back to the newspaper and I just asked our librarian, Susan Garcia, check with the Birmingham news and see what was in on TV that night. Next day, Susan came back to me and told me there was no wrestling. So, uh, so yeah, he got arrested. Well, and, and talk about the indictment of the other one and what you, what you did. Well, the other Tommy Blanton, I mean, he never would talk to me, so I never did, did get him to talk, but he was, um, he was also involved in the bombing and he had a, um, I had nothing to do with it, but the, the, one of the most interesting pieces of evidence in that case was something the FBI recorded. Like they, they almost threw this box out. I mean, there were, they had lots of tape recordings and, uh, one of them was of Tommy Blanton. What they did, this is the typical FBI back in those days, they would go and interview the girlfriend or the wife or whatever and get her kind of hyped up. And then they had it recorded. Essentially, they recorded this conversation, or managed to record this conversation between his, him and his wife. And they had her convinced that he stood her up, you know, to be, go out with this other woman. This is, they were still dating at this point. And uh, so he comes, he comes in and she confronts him about this. And he's like, Tommy, why didn't you tell me that you stood me up to go out with Waylene? He goes, no, no, no. No, no, that was, I, I, I didn't go out with Waylene. That's when we were at the sign shop making the bomb. <laughs> That's on a recording in a so box. Literally, nearly- yeah, literally confessed to being involved in the bombing that killed four people saying, oh, no, honey, I didn't do that. And she was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Now, the trial of the Mississippi burning case, uh, and, of course, that crime took place in 1964. The trial finally began in June of 2005 and resulted in the conviction 
of a man named Edgar Ray Killen, who orchestrated the murder of the three Freedom Riders. Now, after your work led to his prosecution, the jury found Killen guilty of manslaughter, Correct. but not murder, which meant that he could be released on bail, which in fact occurred. That's not, right. you can't get bail if you're convicted of murder, but you can if you are convicted of manslaughter. So he's out on bail, and then tell what happened that caused his bail to be revoked. Well, well, to to explain how he got the bail, <clears throat> and then I'll explain how it got revoked. So he he uh, you know was a wheelchair, and 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 he actually literally used his left hand to hold up his right hand to be able to take the oath and. <clears throat> he was telling the judge, you know, he, the only time he was out of the wheelchair was when he was in bed, you know, this whole kind of long story of how sick he was. And so he's out now he gets out on bond and I get, uh, I got an email from, it was Rita Bender Schwerner. This is Mickey Schwerner's widow. One of the freedom riders who, was, the, murdered. who was murdered. And I get an email from her who actually was actually forwarding an email. And it was about uh, that a, a deputy sheriff had witnessed Killen walking around. And so I, I reached out to the woman and then she put me in touch with the deputy sheriff. And I talked to the deputy sheriff. And he's like, yeah, he was filling up a bunch of gas cans. And he, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't using his wheelchair, filling up all these gas cans and all that stuff. And so. I reported about it, and then the, literally they had a hearing after that. Actually, the judge called me the next morning and asked me if he was credible. I said, well, I don't know, judge, but he's the deputy sheriff. So, <laughs> <laughs> Now, your book closes with an epilogue where you mention that your efforts to track down Klan murderers failed more often than they succeeded in yeah. that. That's Many true. of the criminals that you pursued ended up not being prosecuted. Right. So how have you justified to yourself the huge part of your life that has been spent unsuccessfully pursuing justice? Well, I think, you know, we live for the successes. Maybe I think that's, uh, that's, that's the way life is. I think we, it's not that we fail. The question is not whether we fail the, question is whether we persevere and I, th I believe that's true about justice we 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 strive for you know as a reporter we strive to shine a light on on truth and, and expose the truth and uh, and hopefully make a difference and that's what you know i feel like i hopefully was able to do and and i think the families i think the thing to me the most satisfying thing about it, it's not about me it's about these families and for them to see them get justice after all these decades and to see the tears streaming down their faces. And, uh, that meant that's meant that means more than any other award I've ever won. Yeah. Getting to know these families. Now you say in the end that the pursuit of justice has really been a pursuit of memory. Yes. Yeah. So explain that. Well, you, this is why I think my book's important, not because of me, but because the, these stories, I, I just got an email. In fact, I'm tempted to read, read the email. I just got an email from somebody who's from Birmingham, grew up in Birmingham, 
It actually drove by the church right after it blew up, after it was blown up. And talk about the anger of people. And she never really understood that until later. Why? You know. Um, and then, and, but she read my book. And she said, I never really realized all of what happened until I read your book. And so I'm hopeful that that's, that's what we do. We, as reporters, as journalists, we, we seek to shine a light to let people know what the truth is. And that's what with democracy, that's the only way democracy can work is, is for us as journalists to do our jobs and do it professionally and to let people know what's going on. So what had happened with these Klan murders in the early 60s had essentially been erased that's exactly from, right. from history. And so thanks to your good work, all of a sudden we now have a memory of it. Yeah, well, we've got it recorded and have this down. And, and she's not the only one I've had tell me that. that It's just so many people, including someone I talked to the other day who was a part of the civil rights movement and read my book and said, I had no idea all these things happened. Mm-hmm. But I think it's true, We, at least for me. I mean, I never learned any of this in school. No, they don't teach this in school. Uh, we all hear things about Mississippi and the Deep South still. And of course, there have been some hate crimes in recent years. Uh, give us your assessment of kind of where this Klan mentality, maybe there's a whole lot fewer people who are in the Klan today than there used to be, but nonetheless, the same kind of mentality. How prevalent is that today in the Deep South? Well, it's prevalent beyond the Deep South. I'd say, you know, the fellow drove from the Dallas area to El Paso not too long ago, right? Killed 22 people. Why did he kill them? He said he wanted to prevent an invasion. That's exactly what the Klan said in the 1960s when, when the, the college students were coming down for Freedom Summer. They wanted to stop the invasion. I find that interesting. There's been a real rise in white supremacy in this country, white nationalism over the past probably five, six years. Okay. Well, uh, I'm so glad you're here. The reason that I bring Jerry and I've had other authors here before is because y'all are really good about buying books. <laughs> and we have Intera buying over here. So Jerry's going to be over here at the table, and I encourage you to buy a book or two or three uh, for your closest friends and family. And uh, let's say thanks to Jerry Mitchell thanks. for being with Thanks. I appreciate you. it. Thank you. Before his death, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David Halberstam hailed Jerry Mitchell as the most distinguished reporter in the entire country, an ornament to the profession, and a reflection of what one reporter with a conscience can do. I simply marvel at him and what he has done. Jerry Mitchell's new book is absolutely terrific. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.